0: really great honor to be with you uh, over the weekend. Thank you for Ryan's uh, uh, having us here and his uh, great introduction to what we're looking at uh, over the next uh, uh, couple of days, right? Thinking about Christ from uh, beginning to end and how all of Scripture uh, in all of its diverse stories reveals the glory of Christ and brings everything together to Him. Luke 24 is such a Great passage that uh, reminds us of Jesus going back to the Old Testament and showing how all of it points to him. Now, beginning uh, on the first address, you know, I want to set a few things up for uh, the rest of the weekend, and we'll be doing that also by turning to the subject of Adam and really just creation itself and why that is so important in the beginning of the Bible and why it allows us to see the full story of Christ. But why is such a, why is a study like this important? That's what I want to think about just for a few moments. Uh, Why is it important to think about the whole Bible and to think about its story and how it leads us to Christ, to think about uh, how the whole Bible fits together, right? Well, let me just give you uh, three reasons and they're very, very quick reasons just to sort of get us going and to think about why such a study like this is necessary. Well, first of all, just at the most basic level, to know the scripture and all that it says, to know the whole counsel of God, is absolutely essential to know the triune God, right? Uh, that's obviously very basic, but our chief end, one of the great confessions that our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Indeed, that's why we have been created. But how do we know God? Well, we know God from his word. And he's given us a whole revelation of himself. We are to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are to know him, but we know him through his word. And knowing his word and how it fits together allows us to know him. Right? That's why we have been made. It allows us then to grow in Christian maturity, it allows us to rightly live as the people of God. So, just any time we open up Scripture to understand it in its depth and breadth, right, it's absolutely important to know the God who has made us, the God who has redeemed us, the triune God. Right? Another reason is, is that the Bible's a big book. Uh, and we often don't know what to do with many of its parts. You think of that exhortation that uh, the Apostle Paul gives to Timothy. I won't have you turn there, but you're probably familiar with 2 Timothy 3, verses 15 through 17. The Apostle Paul is is encouraging Timothy, as his young pastor apprentice, uh, to be faithful in gospel ministry, and he reminds him that he is to face trials and difficulties by always returning to Scripture. And he says there that the Scripture will make you wise to salvation in faith in Christ Jesus. He says that all Scripture is God-breathed and it is profitable for our doctrine, what we are to believe and our lives and how we are to live and correction and reproof and instruction. But it's important to realize that when the Apostle Paul is speaking about all Scripture in that context, he's primarily speaking about the Old Testament, The right? New Testament is being written, right? The New Old Testament, he says, is for our instruction and for doctrine and reproof. The Old Testament makes us wise to salvation, but the problem that we find often is we don't know what to do with the Old Testament, right? How many times do you read numbers right, in your devotions? And you say there's a lot there for doctrine of proof, correction, instruction. But the Apostle Paul has clearly said that that whole Old Testament is God-given. And even the book of Numbers and Leviticus and Chronicles and these kind of books have a place and they fit. And part of the task in our Christian knowing of Scripture and our growth in the knowledge of Scripture is to know how those parts fit together. And this is some of the areas that I think we struggle. We're not sure what to do with the parts, how it fits in terms of the whole. So it's always necessary to step back, to gain the big picture, and that's what a study like that is doing, how we can then see how the Bible fits from creation to new creation, from Genesis to Revelation, right? That is what the Apostle Paul was encouraging Timothy to do. He's encouraging us to do that as well. And then lastly, another great reason for a study like this is picked up in the very theme of Christ from beginning to end, right? To know the Lord Jesus better, we need to know the entirety of the Revelation, right? To know Him is life eternal. We see in the Bible that He is God, the Son from eternity who has created us, who is the one who's redeemed us. But it's very, very important to know that the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't come to us just in the New Testament. He does, but he doesn't come in a vacuum. He's presented in light of the Old Testament. He's presented in light of the Bible's entire story, the entire covenantal unfolding of the the Bible story. Uh, Luke 24 reminded us this, right? The law, the prophets, the Psalms speak of him. In fact, without the law of the Prophets and Psalms, without the whole story, you really don't understand who Jesus is in the New Testament and what he came to do. The Old Testament isn't just sort of there or something you can ignore. It provides the pillars and the foundation and the building blocks to understand who he is. Think of how the Lord Jesus is presented in the New Testament. He is David's greater son. He is the last Adam. He is a better than Moses. He is uh, the great high priest. He is the fulfillment of the prophets. All of that language about him comes right from the Old Testament, from the whole Bible. And to understand even him as the son of God, his deity and his humanity, we have to understand him in terms of the whole Bible, right? And so that is why we are doing a study like this. Part of Christian discipleship is to know God through his word, all of it. Right? To know how the parts fit, to see the glory of Christ from beginning to end. Well, where do we begin? Well, the wonderful thing about the Bible is we begin at the beginning. Right? We begin in Genesis, right? We begin with... Uh, the foundation creation story. That's not accidental that the Bible begins there. There was a very well-known Christian pastor and missionary and evangelist of years ago named Francis Schaefer. Maybe you've heard of his name or read of some of his books, and uh, Francis Schaefer was famous for this saying. He says, the wonderful thing about the Bible is that it begins at the beginning and it goes to the end, right? <laughs> And by that, he was saying, right, there is a unified story, and if you're going to understand the end, you've got to go to the beginning. The beginning will lead you to the end, and of course, that is where we must begin. Now, as I set up this in terms of looking at creation, we'll return just in, just in a moment to Genesis chapter 1, really work through those first three chapters, and there's a lot to work through there. But I want to just um, first think about how we ought to approach Scripture. If we're going to put it together and understand the whole counsel of God, it's very, very important that we approach Scripture. And this is the main idea that I want to emphasize here just for a few moments, is that we need to approach the Bible and interpret the Bible and put the pieces of the Bible together according to what actually the Bible is and claims to be, right? Let me just think for a few moments on that before we turn to creation and Adam and this foundation, why this becomes the foundation to everything that follows, right? As we approach the Scripture, we can't just read the Scripture in any way we want, right? We first have to read Scripture according to what it actually is, and we won't spend time looking at all that the Bible says regarding itself, but here are just a few points that are important that will affect how we put pieces together. So first thing we can say about scripture is what is it? It's God's authoritative, infallible, inerrant word written through human authors that reveals his one grand and glorious plan to us, right? That's what scripture is. We could spend time working out each of those areas, But if scripture is God's great revelation of himself that is authoritative and true and so on, we can expect that there is one plan that comes through it all, that it's got a unity to it, it has a coherence to it. As we read the human authors, what they say is what God says, so we pay careful attention to what each of those authors say in their context and see how later authors develop what they are saying under divine inspiration, which allows us ultimately to read the Bible as a whole. We do that because the Bible hasn't come to us all at once. It's God's Word written, but it's come to us over time. That's an obvious point, but sometimes we forget that. If you were to read a mystery novel, so... Years ago, one of my favorite authors, or probably dates me a little bit, but Agatha Christie. I don't know if you ever read Agatha Christie novels, Murder on the Orient Express, and these kind of things that turned into movies. Well, if you read a mystery novel, the very purpose of how a mystery novel works is you don't start at the end. Now, if you do that, you sort of destroy the story, right? You start at the beginning, and as the author unfolds that mystery for you, the author will do it in steps and in pieces, and each of the chapters will build on one another and so on. Well, in many ways, the Bible is like that, right? It's like a grand mystery novel or grand puzzle. I mean, there's a number of ways that you can look at Scripture. And because Scripture is given to us over time, God has chosen to make himself known to us, not all at once. He could have, but he didn't. God decided to work through history. He created the world, made a stage, brought about his plans and purposes through space and time, so that that means then that we have to read Scripture step by step. We have to see how the Old Testament unfolds these things, how it sets us up for the new, how various the revelation that comes over time builds on one another, and how it unfolds from creation to new creation. And we realize that all of it will lead us to Christ. That's what Luke 24 says in other passages. So this word that is God-given through authors comes to us over time. And we read it building as a sort of mystery novel that leads us then to Christ. There's the goal in the end. Think of Hebrews chapter 1 that the author begins his great epistle there and says, In the past God spoke to our forefathers, to the prophets, and all these many and diverse ways, right? That's really the Old Testament. But all of the revelation of God in these last days, he says, has come to pass and fulfillment in the Son, right? So as we read Scripture, we read it as God's Word over time leading us to Christ, And there's one last point I want to mention here is, given this is what Scripture is, and this should be fairly basic to us, God's Word over time and so on, it's important then that we think of reading the Bible in terms of its proper context, right? We all know that you can take passages of Scripture out of context, Uh, The great mistake that people will do is, and often if they misuse the Bible, you often will go and say, well, that's not the context of that passage, right? So when you read Scripture, you put it in context. But because Scripture comes to us over time, there's really three contexts that you need to be always thinking about. And over the weekend, we'll be hitting these three contexts, right? Scripture has come to us over time so that we can think of any text, the immediate context, sometimes what we call the close context, right? So, the Bible's a big book. You could start, in some sense, anywhere. That would be your immediate, direct context, and so you would then study that passage, as often what we do, when we do exposition of Scripture, or you read a commentary. You seek to understand what does the prophet Isaiah say, and you read it as a whole book. And what does uh, Moses say in the Exodus? And what does he, uh, what does John say in John's Gospel? The first context, but because that first context, wherever you're starting, isn't just isolated; it builds on something prior. The second context is then putting that passage in terms of what preceded it. Now, if you begin with creation, eternity preceded it. But as you go elsewhere, there's always something that precedes, right? Chronology in the Bible is important because God has revealed himself over time in this way. So that's another way to say is no text comes to us in a vacuum. It's building on something previously. And the Bible does this. It starts in creation. It will then unfold through time and history. It will unfold itself through, we will say here, the biblical covenants, beginning with Adam and Noah and eventually moving to Abraham and all the way to the coming of the new covenant and the coming of Christ. So we're going to pay very careful attention to how the story unfolds. So we're going to read texts in terms of their immediate context and what precedes them, and ultimately we read them in terms of the whole Bible, right? We live as Christians in the second best place in all of human history. I don't know if you ever thought that. The best place in human history will be when Jesus comes again, right? And he makes everything new. That's the best place in human history but we're in the second best place because we live after the first coming of Christ. All of the Old Testament was leading us to him, and we now live after him, after his incarnation, and his life, and his death, and his resurrection, and his return back to heaven, and we now know more clearly how the plan of God has unfolded, and how it is leading us to Him, and so on, so that we await the end, yes, but we now have the privilege of having a closed canon, what we call the whole canon of Scripture, the 66 books, so that we read the whole Bible now in light of the coming of Christ, we know where the plan is going, we see how the parts fit with the whole, and this is how we are to approach Scripture. We are to look at it in terms of its own presentation, its own categories, its own development. We start with creation and we take seriously the impact of the fall and God's plan of redemption through the Old Testament that leads us to the coming of Christ and the future look to the new creation. And in that, we'll see promises then given That will then develop and unfold promises that will take on greater clarity. We will see patterns that God establishes. We'll call this types or typology that will be laid down. Various people will be very significant in the plan of God that point beyond themselves to ultimately the coming of Christ and the fullness of God's revelation that now has come in him. And as we trace this out, we then begin to see how the whole one plan of God is now rich and detailed and finds its culmination in Christ, and then we as his people are the ones who inherit all the privileges and all the promises. We're the recipients of that, and we see our remarkable and incredible place that we have in God's plan. Well, those are just a few areas of preliminary of what we'll be doing. We'll be taking Scripture seriously as the unified revelation of God. We'll be seeking to then say, all right, what's this context we're in? Let's look at it. How does it relate to what precedes it? How does it ultimately reach its culmination in the whole story? And we'll be keeping our mind and attention to how God's revelation ultimately finds its fulfillment in Christ so that we then can say from creation to new creation, beginning to end, Christ is the main subject matter of the scripture. Uh, God's plan reveals his coming, what he has come to do, and then in our relation to him who we are as his people made and redeemed by him for his glory. Right? Now, let's turn to creation. So, with that in mind, giving us a sense of why we're doing this kind of study, how we're going to approach Scripture, we begin with creation, and we begin here is because that's where the Bible actually begins, right? This unified revelation starts here, and it's not accidental that it starts here. Even think about Moses as the author of the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch. You could think of Moses as he writes to the nation of Israel as they are delivered out of Egypt and they're brought into the wilderness. He could have started With Exodus, just started there. He could have started with speaking to the nation as they were brought out of bondage and slavery and into covenant relationship with God. But instead of starting with Exodus, he starts with Genesis, right? And that's very deliberate. Moses is communicating to us, God is communicating to us, that you can't even understand Israel's role without first understanding the God who created the heavens and the earth. That Genesis becomes foundational to everything that follows, right? So as we turn to the beginning of the story at creation, and then think of Adam, right? Because Adam becomes a pivotal person here. We want to walk through four different issues, and the third and fourth are the ones that we'll spend our most of our time on, right? First issue that we want to look at and question that we want to look at is why start in creation? And I've already given some hint of that, right? Secondly, because we think that the Bible's plan unfolds very uniquely through the biblical covenants, we want to ask whether there is a kind of covenant relationship that is here in creation. And then thirdly, we want to give you the perfect number of seven, So seven is a perfect number. We want to give you seven crucial truths that are taught in creation that go right through the Bible that are foundational to understanding everything that there comes from these opening chapters. And then we want to look at very quickly what went wrong. (laughs) What went wrong and then how God is going to remedy this situation, right? So the first question here is why is creation important? I've already made mention of this, but I want to say a bit more. Creation, beginning with Genesis 1, establishes right from the very beginning uh, the most important relationship that there is that we can ever think of, and it's ultimately God's relationship to the world, right? The creator versus his creation. The creator versus the creature. That is just foundational to the entire Christian view and the entire Bible's view. In addition to this, the Bible will begin with Adam. And that will be very, very important. The Bible doesn't begin with Abraham. It doesn't begin with the nation of Israel. It doesn't begin with David. It begins with this figure named Adam. He will, as we'll see just in a moment, is foundational to the story. Think of the Apostle Paul later on. Romans chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 15. When Paul wants to think about the sort of the zoom-out picture of all of history, he thinks in terms of two individuals that are the most important people in all of human history. Now, in the Bible, you have a lot of important people, but Paul reduces these people to two, right? First, there's Adam, and then secondly, there's Christ, right? And so beginning with creation will allow us to see why Adam is so important, right? Creation will also not only establish, I think, a covenant relationship, but it will also unfold various patterns, uh, various what we would call types that eventually are picked up and driven through the Bible that eventually lead us to Christ. Such things as rest that shows up in the seventh day, such as temple and land, Uh, our role in creation, the human role, even marriage, even Adam as a kind of kingly figure and one who takes God's word and even acts as a kind of priestly figure. All of these are developed in creation. So this is why it's so crucial, and this is why the Bible begins here, right? The second issue we wanna ask is, is there a kind of covenant relationship here? And people debate this because the first time we see the word covenant or a covenant relationship in scripture that is specific is found with Noah. So Trent will look just next time at Noah, right? So in the Noahic, passages, clearly God enters into a covenant relationship with Noah, and that's the first time the word covenant is used. Many people then think that that's the first covenant in Scripture. Yet, I think we can argue that there is a prior covenant, right? Now, we can go into a lot of discussion here. In Noah, there's a sense of an allusion to what's prior, right? Noah builds on Adam. In addition to that, the whole context of Genesis speaks of God as the Lord and Adam in his unique role as servant, obedient one, which is a kind of covenant context in Scripture. Even Adam's description of the human race that we are image bearers in the ancient Near East is is covenant language. So I think that there's a covenant context. And we said the Apostle Paul, Uh, sees that the two most important people of all the human race are Adam and Christ. Well, it's very, very clear in the New Testament that Christ is the head of the New Covenant. (laughs) Well, if he's the head of the New Covenant, what's Adam the head of? Well, he's the head of the human race, but that speaks of a kind of covenant relationship, even though the word is not used. And I think in Genesis 2, Genesis two, for instance, in verse four, you have the word for God that is used. There is the covenant name. In Genesis one, you have the name Elohim that's used. God, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. But in Genesis two, we have the name Lord God. Every time you see that word Lord, That's where we get Jehovah or Yahweh or the name that God reveals in Exodus 3 to the nation of Israel, that this is the God of the patriarchs and this is the God who makes covenants. Well, Moses is writing this to the nation of Israel and he uses the name God in Genesis 2. What would the Israelites hear when they read that or hear of that? They would say the same covenant God That delivered us up from Egypt is the God who made the heavens and the earth. He is the covenant God, right? So, I mean, there's other reasons why we could speak of a covenant, but I think there is a unique relationship here that's established, and it's best described as a covenant relationship. God is our God. That's at the heart of the covenant. We are his people, and that begins right there in creation. Now, I want to spend just a bit more time on the third area. What crucial truths are taught in creation and in Adam that are so foundational to the whole Bible story that eventually lead us to Christ and make sense of the entire plan of redemption? Well, the first, and I have seven truths, and we'll walk through these you know, in an expeditious manner, right? The first thing that can be said is you find in the opening verses of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? The most important thing about creation is that we are introduced, first of all, to the God of the Bible, right? That is the most important truth. Creation identifies The triune God of Scripture, this covenant God. As God is presented here, you can even think of this phrase here, in the beginning. This is the beginning of our space-time universe, but for God, He didn't just begin. He's always existed. As the Bible unfolds, eventually we'll see Trinitarian uh, relationships. The God who was from eternity, the God who was complete within Himself, decided in his plan to create a universe. And that's where our story begins, but in many ways, there was a before the beginning. The triune God in his perfection, in his, what we'd say, self-sufficiency. He is the one who's complete within himself, the standard of the universe. All of that becomes very important in establishing who God is as the Lord, as the sovereign one. And as we work through creation over and over again, God is presented here as the one who rules and who reigns and who is sovereign. Verse 3 and in verse 6 and in verse 9, in fact, as you walk through the creation narrative 10 times, we read God spoke or God said. And he just simply has to speak and boom, there's a universe, there is then lights, there is separation. This is totally the opposite of the ancient Near East, where in their creation stories, the gods, you know, these idols will try to shape the universe. No, no, the God of the Bible is the one who is sovereign. He is Lord. He speaks. He is the one who rules. He is the one who sets the rules and commands, and all of that becomes Very crucial, and the doctrine of creation establishes all that. In fact, he'll establish the rules to our living. He will demand from us, because of who he is, obedience. He is the one who is the personal God, who enters into relationship with his creation and the people he has made, and who cares for his creation. All of that is part of the Bible's story, The second truth that is emphasized, we see in verses 26 and following. So God in his glory and his sovereignty and his power, crucial. That God runs right through the entire Bible. But the second truth is ourselves. In the Bible and in Christian thought, right, human beings are utterly significant, right? It's the opposite of what we find in our world, right? So much as the evolutionary view has taken hold that humans have no value, right? We don't understand who we are, but in Scripture, starting with Genesis 1.26 and the whole narrative itself presents human beings as the crowning act of creation. As you walk through day after day, as all of the other animals are made after their kinds, we learn this in verse 26, God says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let him rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and he blessed them. And then you read later as the text unfolds to rule over creation. This gets picked up in Psalm eight, right? Psalm 8 is David looking back at this and giving praise to the God who has made all things. And then he says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name, but what is man that you are mindful of him? He picks up the idea that humans are utterly significant in the Bible story. And that's very, very important. Angels, as important as they may be, and angels are unique creatures, are not image bearers. What is at the heart of an image bearer? The heart of an image bearer is a person who is made after God to represent God. Even this language here of image and likeness speaks of our relationship first to God, right? We're to relate to Him, and then it tells of our role over creation that we are to rule over creation. We're to put everything under our feet. God made us utterly unique. He made us male and female. We'll come to that just in a moment. But this becomes very, very important. Why is it important? Because eventually, the Son of God, the eternal Son, takes on our image. And you think, why is that, right? How do you even make sense of an incarnation, and how do you make sense of why the Son of God would do that? Well, it's tied into creation. We are made after God. We are made significant, and God will then, as the Lord of the universe, so love his creatures and love us that he will not let us go astray. He will now come and redeem us. He'll take on our image. In fact, we can say even being made in the image of God is already picking up the idea that we are patterned after someone. Later on in the scripture, Jesus is described, Colossians 1, for instance, as the image of the invisible God. While he is the image of the invisible God in terms of his deity, but also he takes on our humanity and becomes image. Those become important areas that are so crucial down the road. So that Creation establishes who God is in all of his glory and and splendor and sovereignty and power and majesty. Uh, It just displays and identifies who we are in our exalted position, and that becomes part of the story and ultimately part of the plan of redemption. But then thirdly, creation establishes Adam. Now, he's what's described here in verses 26 and following, but as he's then described in chapter 2. So chapter 2, in some sense, expands on the creation of human beings. It zeroes in on this unique relationship that God has with us and his creation of Adam, his creation of Eve, the establishment of marriage. But it's very, very important to see that Adam isn't just the first man of the human race. That's true. Adam is not just what we would say a kind of one-off figure, right? He's the first man, and then you just sort of ignore him. No, Adam's role in creation is not just to have us come from him, that's true, but he ultimately establishes the whole future of the human race in some sense, right? He is the one who now is a representative of the human race, and there's a number of ways that this is taught to us in Scripture, Right? He is the one who's created first, and Eve then is created second. He's the one who is held accountable for sin. He's the one that later scripture will say that in Adam, all die. His choice that he made, as we see in Genesis 3, he's given a command in Genesis 2. You can have every fruit of the trees and all of the food in the garden, but you must not have one. If you eat of it, you will die. That disobedience that he eventually brings out has impact on the entire human race, right? So Adam is presented as a unique figure indeed. In fact, you could say he is a kind of early. And as we walk through the Old Testament, there will be a development of prophets and priests and kings. But Adam is a kind of early prophet, priest, and king. He is a king in the sense that he's to rule over creation. That's pretty easy to see. He's a kind of prophet because he's given the word of God, the command of God, and he is to communicate that to Eve, which she picks up in Genesis 3, and ultimately all of his children that would come. But he's also a priestly figure because he's put in this Eden sanctuary, most see that in Genesis 2, that this Eden is almost like a temple sanctuary. And in verse 15, there's language that describes him as working and caring. Eventually, that's all priestly language. And at the heart of a priest in the Bible, there's a, there will be a salvation sense of priest. We'll come to that tomorrow. But at the heart of a priest is one who lives before God, who lives in the presence of God. That's why eventually the nation of Israel will be called a kingdom of priests. Why are they called a kingdom of priests? Because they are to dwell in the presence of God. Why is the church ultimately a kingdom of priests? Because we are to dwell in the presence of God, and all of this, I think, speaks of a kind of, again, a covenant relationship that's here. He's a kind of early ruler. He's a kind of early prophet. He's a kind of early priest. He has a very, very significant role, so that eventually, because of his sin, all human beings will be affected by it, right? So he is crucial, and eventually, Christ will come as last Adam. Tomorrow, we'll return to Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2 is a passage that quotes Psalm 8, and the entire person and work of Christ is set in the context if he comes to undo what Adam did, right? Right? Even our song that we sang earlier from Matt Papa, The Wondrous Mystery, speaks of him as being a better Adam. Right? Well, where does all that come? It starts here in creation. Right? The fourth area to think of in creation is that over and over again, and you see it uniquely in verse 31 of chapter 1, but it's repeated in verse 10, 12, 18, 21, 25, 31. Each day, it's called good, God makes the first day; it's good. He makes the second day. Eventually, in chapter or verse 31 of chapter one, God sees everything that He made, and here's His assessment: It's very good. Right? Oh, this has so many implications for the whole Bible. Right? This establishment of everything good, right, means that it's at not only the kind of moral perfection. There's no sin. There's no death. All of that gets introduced in chapter three, but to say that the world is good is that from the hand of God, he made a world that does not have sin and death and destruction and so on and so on and so on. Now, of course, Genesis three is gonna change that. But eventually, we're going to need one who will bring back that goodness, right? That's really the plan of redemption, to restore what was lost from the original creation. God is never presented here as making an evil world or a fallen world. This was a good world. And he will then, in light of sin, bring a better world. You read the end of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, and it is that good world restored yet even greater, right? In many ways, the establishment of this world as good sets you up for what eventually will go wrong and how God will ultimately remedy the situation, right? And then on another, the fifth area is important. I'll just highlight it here very briefly. The seventh day establishes rest. Now, there's a lot of discussion as to what is going on here. But we read in chapter 2, verse 1. And really, it's too bad that uh, we have a chapter break here, right? Uh, Chapter 1 really should go to the end of verse 3 of chapter 2 because it's all one account. God pronounces in verse 31 of chapter 1, everything is good. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work that he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, there's something very unique about this day. Not only does God rest But there's something absent that is discussed on every other day. And what's absent is a little refrain that after all one through six, it says there's evening and there's morning and then it lists the days. First day, second day, third day. Well, here, there is no refrain that says that. It simply says, God rests. There's no morning and evening. It's almost as if this is What is to be permanent? Now, what's going on here? We'd have to spend a lot of time developing this, but I will suggest to you, especially as you put the whole Bible together, that what's going on here as you build to, this is a good world, everything is made good. And what does God do? He's not tired, obviously that's not the case. He's not needing a sleep. He's not like, oh, this has been hard work. No, what's he doing? He's made us in his image. Image, we're made for him. We're made to rule under his sovereignty and power. It's a covenant context here. What he is doing, he's entering into full enjoyment with his creation. That's what he's doing. He's entering into rest. It's not accidental that after sin enters the world, one way of picturing salvation is in terms of rest. It'll be pictured in the Old Testament in terms of a day, the Sabbath, that will in some sense look back to this. But even in the nation of Israel, they will not have full rest. They will celebrate the day. They will look back to creation, but they will also look forward to a greater rest to come, which is what the New Testament announces ultimately has come in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think the seventh day is a very, very important point. God is satisfied with his world. He enters into covenant relationship. Chapter two then unpacks that covenant relationship with Adam and the creation of Eve. Everything is sort of set here in terms of foundational building block and pieces. And then you have Eden as a kind of garden sanctuary. That's a sixth area of creation. Creation establishes this place. This place is picked up throughout the Bible. Eventually, this garden sanctuary gets identified with the dwelling of God and a tabernacle and a temple. That will become important in the Bible story. God dwells with his people. And I think what we see in in here is the task of Adam and Eve was to take that garden sanctuary where God would uniquely dwell. The omnipresent God would uniquely dwell. He wouldn't be limited by it, but he would covenantally dwell with his people. They were to take that garden and they were to expand the borders to the uttermost parts of the earth. But of course they didn't. Eventually, in Genesis 3, they are booted out of that garden. And in many ways, the story is how do you get back to the garden, right? How do you get back to Eden? Eventually, at the end of the Bible, the new heavens and new earth is described as a holy of holies, right? It's a beautiful picture that we'll see on Sunday that is like Eden restored to the fullest extent. Well, that's where the Bible will move from Genesis 2, ultimately, to Revelation 21 And so on. There's also the establishment of marriage as the seventh point that clearly then lays out for us uh, not only human relationships, but marriage in Scripture becomes a pattern ultimately of a greater covenant relationship of God and his people and Christ and the church. These aren't accidental. In fact, in Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul can quote Genesis 2 and speak of the mystery that's centered in Christ and his church. So here's crucial, pivotal building blocks that are crucial in creation. And all of these get developed. And God is established of who he is and us and Adam and rest and all of these matters. Everything is perfect, but we know something goes wrong. And Genesis 3, right? Genesis 3, rooted in history. Something desperately goes wrong And it's very, very important if we had time to work through this entire chapter. What happens here is that this becomes a revolution at the heart of the universe, right? A whole created order is in some sense turned topsy-turvy, right? In Genesis 1 and 2, God is the Lord who creates man to rule over the creation. And what happens in Genesis 3? The creature, the the animal, goes to humans who are to rule over them. And man takes then the place of God, or tries to take the place of God, right? It's a total reversal of the created order, and the effects of this aren't minor. How do you know that? Well, eventually, think of the Apostle Paul will say, all have sinned, and all have fallen short of the glory of God. Where does that come from? Well, he's read Genesis 3 and following very, very carefully. In Genesis 3, Adam's sin affects the entire human race. How do we know that? Well, you look at the curses, the curses that come upon humans, upon the entire created order. Ultimately, we are cut out of the presence of God so that sin's effects that lead to death, both spiritually and physically, cut us off from God. There's the vertical relationship. It causes disruption at the human level. Adam and Eve are at each other's throats. It ultimately creates a curse upon the entire universe, and all of this now overturns the beauty of Genesis 1 and 2. God stands in wrath against us. Humans who were made to rule and put everything under our feet, eventually, are put under earth feet, right? You're put six feet under if you live... You know, eventually in terms of uh, burials and everything else, right? We were made, now we come, we were, Adam was the head of the human race, but now we're all in him, death and sin. Creation is no longer good, no longer at rest. It's hardly, you can see in Genesis 3, at rest. We are cast out of God's presence. And the only way back to that presence is that you're going to have to move forward in redemptive history and see if God is going to restore us. It's a hopeless situation that's described in Genesis 3. And then, of course, what falls on this on the heels of this is Genesis 4, brothers killing one another. Genesis 5, a genealogy that speaks about everybody other than Enoch, which gives you a glimmer of hope. Uh, Everyone dying. And, of course, you remember Genesis 2. If you eat of that fruit, you will die. I mean, this is setting up now The question of does the human race just get extinguished? Does it just come under sin and death? Is God now simply not the one who made us for himself now just simply our judge? Or is there hope? And of course, in Genesis 3.15, we'll finish with this here, is there's a glimmer of hope. There's a promise that's given. And this promise, in some sense, runs through the entire Bible. So in Genesis 3.15, it's, it's, it's enigmatic, it's not fully developed, it's in seed form, but we are told that God is gonna do something. God is gonna initiate, and that's what you would expect. The God of the universe, who is sovereign, who is Lord, will initiate in grace. He says, I will put enmity between you, Satan's offspring, the serpent's offspring, you, the serpent, and the woman. Between your offspring and hers, the seed of the woman, he will crush your head. He will strike, you will strike his heel. There's there's an initial sort of statement here that really is a kind of promise. And the promise is this God will not let the human race ultimately be destroyed. We'll almost see it in Noah, but he will not let it be destroyed. What God made us to be is to rule over this world, he will restore. Adam has brought death and destruction, yet there's going to come from the human race, the seed of the woman. There's going to come one who will act and undo what Adam did, right? There's the anticipation. This is how it gets developed through scripture. Adam was disobedient, but eventually an obedient one will come who will take on our image, who will live his life in obedience for us, who will go to a cross and meet God's righteous demand on our behalf, and all of it will be because God initiates to save through the human race. Right? And that is what is initially given here, and that is what eventually will unfold. And this promise will take on greater precision, clarity, definition as you go through the revelation of God. And that is what we want to see over the next number of sessions of how this good world that God made, and He made us for Himself, has been ruined by sin. That the only hope for us is that God has made a promise, which thankfully He does, and that God will keep that promise and he will provide a better Adam. He will provide one from the human race. He will preserve that human race. And he will do so by sending ultimately one who will take on our humanity, the divine Son, who will come for us. And what will he do? He will bring us back to God. He will heal all horizontal relationships. He will bring a new creation and remove all of the curse. And all of that comes in his life, death, resurrection, ascension, all of his work. And no Old Testament figure does any of it, and only he is the one who can do it. Well, that's how Christ will eventually be seen as from beginning to end. As we move from the Bible's beginning story and the disaster of the fall, the initial promise of God, that promised plan will unfold it will walk through the biblical covenants, it will take on greater clarity and definition, and ultimately it will lead us to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our only hope, who can only save us, no one else can, and he is the one who can do so, and do so sufficiently, totally, completely, so that he is our Lord and Savior and restores us to all the very purpose of our creation in the first place. Well, that's how Christ begins to be seen as from beginning, so we are at the beginning, and eventually we move to ultimately the end. These opening chapters are so foundational, right? To deny these opening chapters, to misread them, and to ultimately not take them seriously, ultimately you'll never make sense of the whole Bible's story, right? So I leave that with you in terms of creation. Let's just ask the Lord to Be with us as we have thought about these things and as we walk through them over the entire weekend together. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've given us your plan from all eternity that you brought about in creating this world, creating us, and revealing yourself to us. We see even in these opening chapters our unique relationship to you, the greatness of our creation. You have made us for yourselves, but... Apart from your initiative to save, we are helpless and hopeless. But you have sent your Son, you've acted in grace, you have given your promises, and you've kept your promises. And that should be an encouragement to us this evening as we think of the great plan of salvation that has led to the Lord Jesus, and help us to rejoice in him even this evening and give you thanks for your own dear Son, in whose name we ask all of these things. Amen.